0: Well, we find ourselves here uh, at the end of Luke 18. We've been uh, in Luke 18 for the last month or so, and uh, we find some consistent themes running through. And I think they're applicable to us. I mean, I think this is always true, right? But they're applicable to us as we think as a church. What does it mean for us to pursue this new vision plan? For us to grow? For us to move toward being a particular church? So you've. You heard Kelly speak to one of uh, the points of the vision plan. We're going to have uh, a more comprehensive conversation in two weeks. Um, you've heard little bits uh, uh, on the past number of Sundays, and uh, we're moving toward becoming our own church, uh, separating technically from Redeemer, and there's a lot going on, right? And so we are asking those questions. What does it look like for us to be a church? What are our hopes and dreams? And, and the question becomes, what comes to mind when you think about a successful, healthy church. What are the churches that you have in mind? And uh, as somebody who, as a pastor and being around the church and other churches a good bit, uh, you know there are a lot of stories that come into mind of God blessing and working through churches, uh, growing them and allowing them to be a presence. And I, I uh, just a moment of vulnerability. There's temptations for me in the midst of that, right? Comparison and to look back and think about friends that I either went to, I have a few friends that I went to college with, actually a number of friends that I went to college with who are pastors, and then obviously folks that I went to seminary with who are pastors, and I can think about one of my roommates from college, and he planted a church in Berkeley, California, and it became a multi-site church, and then he was invited to be the pastor of this very old historic church doing just amazing things, right? And then another roommate from college, uh, church in Jacksonville, and they just recently built this amazing building, and Uh, and we struggle to find any building, right? Uh, And I can compare, and I can think about the same thing for people that I was in seminary with, and I can compare and think, yeah, we started this church with a little over 70 people uh, eight years ago, and I'd hoped it would be bigger now, right? And so you ask questions. What are are the implications, right? I, I think that as I come to a passage like this, and Honestly, to a lot of scripture, I find a lot of hope. I love being here. I'm excited. I think the Lord's at work. There are times where I'm tempted to compare and wish that things were different. But what we find throughout scripture and what we find in this passage is God working in, un, through unexpected people and unexpected ways uh, to an unexpected end. And I think there is hope for us because our tendency is to think I've got to have it all together. And this could be church wise. You, you Uh, might think about it as your role in the church, but you might be thinking about it in terms of your job or relationships and uh, comparing yourself and I'm I'm not successful enough and I need to be better, better. I need to get more of my life together and I'm, I'm just sitting in my weakness and I don't know what to do with it. But what we find all the time is God working through weakness, not even just despite weakness, but through weakness. And there's uh, encouragement there. Uh, there is hope there. That doesn't mean that we don't pursue what we call theologically or biblically sanctification, being made more like Jesus, growth in our spiritual lives. Absolutely, that matters. And the way that we live matters. But what we also find is this great encouragement that we come to God with our need, with our weakness, and that is where we find hope. And if we don't do that, If we're focused on the success or the strength or the power of ourselves, we absolutely miss Jesus. We miss Christianity. We miss the whole thing. And so as we look at this passage, I pray that we find incredible hope seeing God work through unexpected people in unexpected ways to an unexpected end. Those are clearly my three points. Let me pray. Lord, I I pray that you would meet us here in this time, that we would Find great encouragement and hope here in Luke 18. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Luke 18 has already shown this picture and theme of God working through the maybe unexpected folks. Right. So uh, the parable of the widow uh, praying. The Widows had no power, no status in society. And she was the one that was properly persistent in her prayer. Uh, we find the tax collector is the one. The tax collectors, were they were terrible. They were just uh, objectively terrible. They were unjust, and uh, they, they did not care for other people. They cared only for themselves. And the tax collector finds himself as the one in relationship with the Lord because he has laid himself at the Lord's mercy and admitted his need. And, and then we find the rich young ruler, the one who is supposed to have it all together. And the rich young ruler is not... Finding the, the hope uh, in his success. He actually needs, the call is even for him to give that up, right? So it's not in his riches or in his power or position. We, we, we talked about uh, Jesus calling the children to him. And for us, in, in our culture and society, that, that makes sense. right? we have this high value of children. In this culture, in this time, children were just a burden until they were old enough to, to be, begin to pull their own weight. So they, they were pushed aside, Uh, But Jesus welcomed them. Here we find the beggar. Uh, Other gospel accounts let us know that this beggar's name is Bartimaeus. But he is a beggar. He is a blind man that that is only a drain to society. Fortunately, we do live in a culture where people with all kinds of disabilities are not in this position. But in this moment, this blind man has no way to earn a living, no way to be successful in life. He relies upon... The the mercy and the giving of other people, he is as they would have thought and talked about only a drain to society. And so, when he hears the commotion, and he asks who it is, and he's told it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he cries out, he is rebuked. He's he's hushed. He's told to be quiet. You see this in verse thirty nine. He is he's cried out, and then he was told those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he keeps going. He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And we'll we'll talk about in a moment what what he's getting at here with this idea of son of David. But he really, I hope that we hear this story and see this beggar, this blind man, is the inspiration in the story. We think about who who is it that inspires you? And you, you can... Get on the interwebs and look up inspirational characters and almost every character that comes up, whether it's somebody that's really successful in business and you'll see all these CEOs and you'll see people who have excelled in sports or in whatever their career is that almost always it is somebody who has been successful. Now, they may have overcome great hardship. They may have overcome weaknesses, right? But in the end, they're the successful ones, and those are the people that inspire us. And we think about who inspires you, and it is often it's somebody who has been successful, who the, the world sees and celebrates, right? Because of their gifting, because of the way they have been able to turn things around because of the, what they have achieved in life. And the reality is it's often people who are at the, at the top, right? And statistically speaking, only a few can be at the, in that position. And so the question really often should be for us, what does it look like for us? Uh, what does it look like for all of us, uh, whether uh, we're whatever we're pursuing If we're going to be in the middle or we're going to be just average, right? Um, What is our inspiration and who is our inspiration? Here, we're encouraged to find inspiration from the beggar. From this man with great weakness who just relies on other people. He's the one that we want to be like. And and here's what we see. This beggar is the one with the greatest insight in this passage. We, We just have seen the disciples. The disciples, I mean, these are like... These are the guys, right? They're Jesus' guys, and they don't get it. They're missing it. We, we see that in the, the passage, the first part of this passage, uh, verse 34. They understood none of these things. Uh, they're completely missing it. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They, they, they didn't get it. But here, the beggar sees much more. So he's told this is Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, if we are familiar with the story, Nazareth is this kind of backwater town. It's nothing, but he knows there's a lot more going on there. So he cries out. What does he cry out? He cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. He, he hears, this is Jesus of Nazareth, but he knows there's more to it. Son of David is this picture of the promised Messiah. We're seeing that this is, he's recognizing this is a part of the greater story. So what, what the disciples didn't understand in the first part And talking to the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written about the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is also an Old Testament reference from Daniel that is, is this picture of the Messiah. Everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This Old Testament story, this story that was written thousands of years ago and lived out hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of years ago, thousands of years, many years, this story has been unfolding and it's going to be fulfilled in Jerusalem when these things happen. The beggar recognizes this is true. He's understanding some of what's going on when he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Using this messianic term. And so Jesus sees him and he engages him. And there's this beautiful picture of Jesus engaging this incredibly weak man and, and Engaging him on a very personal level, we talk regularly about the fact that we sometimes are too focused on the individual and our individual relationship with Jesus. And it is very much a corporate thing that we're called into. But it's also true, and we celebrate that Jesus cares about us individually. And so he individually interacts with this beggar and he asks him, What what do you want? What do you want? What are your needs? Let's let's be in relationship. He engages him. When others have rebuked him and told him to go away, Jesus says, bring him here. Let us, let us engage. And he works in a powerful way. And because of, not just, again, in spite of, but because of his weaknesses, we see Jesus' power. So that Jesus takes his limitations, takes his weaknesses, and works this beautiful story. This story That happens because he recognizes his weakness. He's in this position where he owns his lacking. He owns his weakness. He's not putting on a front. Thinking I've got it together. Hey, 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 Jesus, I understand who you are. I've got more insight. Or uh, he's saying, "I, I need mercy. Have mercy on me, Son of David. He's recognizing and owning his weakness. He's bringing it before Jesus. This is fundamental to Christianity, and it differentiates it from other religions. And often, unfortunately, what is communicated in a lot of churches that it is dependent upon what I do, how I live, what I get together, if I check off a list, if I uh, if I look good enough, if I get my life pious enough, then Jesus will love me. And, you know, the gospel continually again and again is you have to come and own your weakness and recognize that we desperately need the mercy of the Lord. And what happens? Jesus answers. He speaks into that weakness and works powerfully. So when he says, I, I, wanna, uh, I want to see, essentially, he says, uh, I want to recover my sight. The Lord says in verse 41, um, I'm sorry, in verse 42, Jesus says, recover your sight. What, what he says here is actually just one word. It's see. It says see. And it, it's this one word. Jesus has the power to heal, to give sight to this man who is blind with one word. This is this also this incredibly beautiful biblical picture of God creating the world with a word of Jesus himself being the word we see in the first chapter of John. And here, with one word, Jesus heals this man. He gives him sight. That's the kind of power that he has so that we see that the faith that this man had, this insight that he had as to Jesus, who Jesus was, uh, it is demonstrated to be correct. And it, to be clear, was faith in Jesus. That's, Jesus says, it is your faith that has saved you, made you well, Um, that that faith was in Jesus. It was in Jesus's ability to to bring this about. The object of the faith was Jesus himself. And then Jesus heals him. And he says, when he says, uh, your faith has saved you, has made you well, it is this Greek word, sozo. And it it does have the connotations of both making well, but it also uh, is often translated as saved. And I think there's this ambiguity that Luke is using here that it's not just his physical healing that is happening, that it is very clearly a spiritual healing as well. He's, he's engaging the deeper need at the same time. He's engaging the need for forgiveness of sin, for his spiritual salvation, for the eternal life that he's been talking about this whole chapter and all of these stories. It's all linking together, and Jesus is bringing about that kind of salvation for. This man, this is how he works, and we have to engage this and step into this. That We have to stop thinking it's about getting my life together and in order for Jesus to love me. We bring our weakness, and we find that he does bring healing there. There is growth, spiritual growth and sanctification, but it all starts with us and continues with us regularly admitting our weakness. This beautiful passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 gets at this. When he's talking to the people of God, he says, consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. That no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's this picture that in your weakness, Jesus came. Jesus is the strength. Jesus is the wisdom. Jesus is the power and not me and not you. And we rest in that beautiful truth. And then we see Jesus calling and working not only through unexpected people, but in unexpected ways. We continue to expect the powerful and the successful and the strong. Those are the people that we want to rejoice and celebrate, the the well-known and successful people who are following Jesus. And, And hold them up and see what can happen, right? Uh, And then we also want to celebrate the blessing that that God offers. And we often define that as success in the world, but he's working in unexpected ways. He's been heading to Jerusalem since chapter (laughs) 9. This, this whole journey, chapter 9, and then here we are in chapter 18, and we have a couple more stories before he actually gets to Jerusalem. But all along, all along the way, it, it gives this picture of him heading to Jerusalem. He's on a journey, and he's headed there for a particular purpose. We know he's getting close here. Jericho, in verse 35, where he meets the, the beggar, uh, is, is very close after his long journey. So he's, he's getting there. And there's an expectation as to the ways that he's going to work. The disciples think that when he gets there to Jerusalem, he's going to be this warrior king. And Israel, who is under occupation in the promised land by the Romans, they think that Jesus is going to be the king who overthrows that and brings about the, the successful promised land hope that they were looking for. And we know that's not what he does. We know that he's headed to Jerusalem for a different purpose. And we see it. He tells them exactly what it is in verse 32 and 33. He is going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. The son of man, he's referencing himself here. It's this, uh, again, another messianic phrase from Daniel. And uh, he says the son of man is going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. That's a picture of judgment. That's a picture of the Israelites when they sinned and rebelled against God, they were turned over to the Gentiles. They went into exile, or they were occupied. Both of those things happened. So he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. He's going to experience this judgment. He's going to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed. We're going to talk about it. Don't Don't worry. We are getting And He's going to rise. But the bulk of what he's talking about here is suffering and death. That's why he's going to Jerusalem and he's inviting them to go along. We know as well that he's inviting them to go along because all but one of the disciples is also killed for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. There is this. Reality that we see throughout scripture that he's going to experience those things for our salvation. This thing that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper every Sunday, this thing, this event that accomplishes our salvation. But he's also calling us to follow him in that what we call cruciform life. The cross is where he dies. And the cruciform life is this life that is patterned after Jesus. He's an example for us. He's calling us into that. This was the plan all along. It's clearly the plan. Jesus knows it's not some horrible accident. It's a part of God's plan in all of its horror. It's a part of his plan, not a horrible accident that he goes to judgment, mocking, being shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed. This is a radical departure from today's story. Often what we hear Certainly in our context, and we talk about this regularly, this, this fact that we're often conflate the church and Jesus with the American dream and uh, this blessing. And we may, not be, we may not go as far as the prosperity gospel that would say you absolutely are promised uh, health and wealth. But we, we, we still think there's, you know, blessing often becomes this thing uh, that is uh, financial or uh, circumstantial in our lives, but that's not what we find. We find that we're actually invited into difficult things, and this is key that we understand this, this unexpected way. One of the most common things that I see in deconstruction stories, those, those stories of people leaving the faith, is things got hard and it wasn't supposed to. And it's often because they heard promises from the, the church that aren't biblical promises. They heard promises that if you follow Jesus and love him, that everything's going to be easy, that the things are going to go well for us, that you're, we're going to be successful. And, and again, that's our culture. That's our um, American dream idea, being seeping into the church. And, and that's, that's not what we're, we're promised. And so that as, as we think about what they were hoping for, what their expectations were, were for this great nation Often what we hear uh, out of the church is uh, that what we expect is prosperity and power and position and freedom. Uh, that's what we want. And that's what we expect. If God's in control, he's going to build a powerful church and he's, he's often going to do it through America. And this idea of a Christian nation, which is just not a thing, um, that this is our and this is where we often find hope. And yet the church around the world and throughout history, that's not the experience as we think about what's happening in Haiti right now and the missionaries that are still in captivity. And we think about what's happening in China and praying for Pastor Wong Yi and his wife, who are still in prison now for years and probably will be. And the suffering that the church is experiencing, we make a mistake to expect things to be just easy. That that's not the promise that we have. Now, the third point is we go to this unexpected end. Is that what we find is there is promise? So you know, you're thinking, particularly if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, oh, this sounds great. I want to jump in here. (laughs) There is beautiful hope, and the hope is that the promises of fulfillment and joy and blessing they're actually so often intermingled with the suffering and the pain. Those things don't go away, but there is the promise, to be clear, the promise of resurrection. So there is the suffering and the being mistreated and the being killed, but there is the resurrection. Jesus said, that's where I'm headed. And it comes because of Jesus's work and it comes in through him. The unexpected end, to be clear, is not even to think about it as the resurrection or salvation or blessing or joy or community, those things are all things, benefits that come from Jesus himself. The unexpected end is Jesus. It is him. We too often want to use Jesus. And this is one of the ways that we make the mistake of of combining the American dream with Christianity is we think that Jesus is a way to get to the things that we want. But Jesus is the end himself. He brings with him benefits to be sure. But Jesus is the end. And some of that is comfort while the mess is going on. I think about some of the mourning and grief that was, you know, prayed for just this morning. I think about uh, for those of us that are still connected uh, at Redeemer and over just the last month's funerals for Ames Nottingham and Craig Burton and Brian Ali. And that's just just the the tip of the iceberg of the death and grief and loss that we're all experiencing And, and that we're experiencing in heavier ways right now, right? Absolutely, we are. That's why we talk about our need for community and our need for counseling and New Hope Counseling Center and the benefits of storied lives. And we say those things are valuable and we need those things. But let's also be clear, the story that God is working here it, we would make a mistake if we think things are worse now than they've ever been, even when there is a sense in which they might be worse for us, for any one of us at this particular moment in our lives, that, that, not diminishing that reality. But the truth is, you look throughout history, and it is full of mess, and God was at work then, and he's at work now. He's a God who works through that mess throughout history, and he is the God who is at work now in all of the mess and loss that we're experiencing and he's at work through Jesus, the one that is offered to us. The end for us. He's the fulfillment of God's redemptive work. Go back to that promise. And everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Here is the, the end, the accomplishment, the fulfillment of this ages old, this age-old story that God is working, redemption in this world. It's happening through Jesus. He's the fulfillment of that. Again, the son of man, the Daniel reference, the son of David. This just constant Old Testament reference to the Messiah coming from the line of David. God is at work. God is working, has been working throughout history and is continuing to work now. There is incredible hope. Yes, there is the mistreatment, but then there is the resurrection. And we find here, what does the beggar do? Imagine the dreams that this blind man had his whole life to, to receive sight and then to actually have some agency in his life, to, to earn uh, a living, to enter into community in, in new ways that he wasn't able to. All the things that he had imagined. And what do we find him doing? He doesn't go to do that, he follows Jesus. His, him getting his sight, that wasn't the end. Jesus was the end. What does he do? He immediately recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And we have the opportunity to with the the people who observed it and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And the invitation is for us to then follow Jesus, for us to be offered him. So that in the midst of the mess and the suffering, we could experience Jesus and yes, there is the promise of the resurrection and that, but we experience Him ourselves. And Jesus, to get him, to get who He is, to be in relationship with him, that is what is offered. It's not to get to Jesus so that we can have success, whether for our church or our jobs or our families, it's so that we can have Jesus. That's what's on offer here. And that's what we are challenged to think about. What are we pursuing? What are our ultimate goals? Because the invitation is to make Jesus our ultimate goal. And there's a sense in which if you think about that in your life and you meditate on it, it, it could feel, if you have that conversation, I recognize, if you have that conversation with your spouse or a friend, that there's a, a level at which it, it just kind of feels maybe cheesy or weird. And, and, and that's part of the way that our culture has shaped us, right? But we should be talking about pursuing Jesus and experiencing him and having him. Because that's what's on offer. Jesus, the word of God, the one who created the whole world, is offering himself to us in all of our weakness. And he's doing that as we bring our weakness to him and lay ourselves in his mercy. Son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. What does he offer? He offers himself. The ultimate mercy that there is. Let me pray.